Morning, everyone. I'm Dave Sattler, one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have those who are watching today online. I just want to say before I start the sermon today, a special thanks to all of you for sticking with us during this challenging season of transition as a church. Thank you. It means a lot. So today we continue our series, Lessons from the First Church, an adventure through the riveting Bible book of Acts. Acts tells the exciting story of how the church of Christ is born, how God empowers scores of ordinary people, just like you and me, to be his messengers, and how they, in spite of opposition, spread the gospel to the capital of the mighty Roman Empire and beyond. The book of Acts offers valuable lessons on how to relate to one another in church community and how to participate in the mission of Jesus in our world. But for my money, most importantly, Acts offers us boots on the ground teaching on how to live and grow in relationship with Jesus. People of North Shore Alliance Church, I believe there's much for us to learn from this story of the first church. Acts' storyline is driven by two catalytic events, the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We cannot understate the impact of the physical presence of the risen Christ. In that key time spent with Jesus post-resurrection, 40 days, it says, the disciples began to change. The unmistakable truth that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead would become a primary preaching point for the disciples going forward. Yet, it's not till 50 days after the resurrection that the disciples, still waiting in Jerusalem, received the promised Holy Spirit. And it's then, after the Spirit is poured out, that we see the disciples transformed from a scattered disillusioned, fearful bunch to a fearless, confident, empowered cohort willing to risk everything. And today we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. A little like our Thanksgiving, Pentecost was a time to give thanks for the grain harvest, to recall God's giving of the Mosaic law, and to trust God to continue to provide a harvest for his people. And Pentecost happened annually 50 days after Passover and always involved special visits to the temple. And for centuries, God had called Jews from far and near, near and far, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. Which leads us to our discussion question for today. Here it is. Where are you from? And I want to say, if you're comfortable, find someone you haven't met. We already did names. The next question to ask people, I would say, just to give you a little tip in Conversations 101, where are you from? People love to talk about where they're from, okay? So here's a, we should be playing Cotton Eye Joe. Where do you come from? Where do you go? Anyways, here's the, the discussion question now. Go find someone and ask them where they're from. Each take a minute to share where you're from. Go for it. Ten years ago. Ten years ago on our trip to Israel, we visited dozens of biblical sites, but none captured my attention like this spot. The southern temple steps in Jerusalem. 
In the first century, this entrance from the south served as the public entryway to the temple. It was also known as the rabbi's teaching steps. And many scholars placed Peter's sermon here for several reasons. One, the steps with the outer wall behind created great amphitheater. Two, from here, the old city of David is in plain view. More on that soon. Three, the water baths that the people used for cleansing before temple worship were situated here and would have been ideal for the massive undertaking of baptizing 3,000 people at a time. Upwards of 50,000 visitors would flock to the relatively small city of Jerusalem for occasions like Pentecost. So when the masses saw or heard these strange phenomena, a violent wind, tongues of fire, and the wonders of God spoken in different languages, they would surely have come rushing to the temple to see what was going on. Isn't it amazing how God orchestrates just the right audience at just the right time in just the right location? This is the message and the backdrop for Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 to 41. I won't read every single verse. I'll jump around a little bit. You can follow in your Bibles or on the big screen behind me. Here we go, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. In verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Jews, Peter goes on, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriot, patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did he, his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this incredible message. We thank you that you came to earth to rescue us in that first century Jesus of Nazareth is fully human and fully God. And this is our story. It's the greatest story ever written. I ask God that you would come now and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit. God, we're hungry to hear from you. Lord, we pray now that spirit of God, you would have your way in our hearts, in our church, and that you would take the truth of this message and apply it personally to each of us in this time, in this place. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us. We're hungry to hear from you. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. Yes, this really is Peter. Prior to this, Peter had been unstable, impetuous, a real high, low guy. Oh, how I can relate. My middle name, you guessed it, it's Peter. I'm a lot more like Peter than I am like David, for sure. Why did my parents not name me Peter? Probably a good thing. But we see a different Peter now. He's humble and he's bold. Peter's newfound confidence and his spiritual authority flow from his encounters with the risen Christ and his baptism in the Holy Spirit. These people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. While Jews didn't normally eat that early in the day, even at 9 a.m., they usually skip breakfast, let alone drink wine in the morning in those days. Still, drunkenness is the only explanation that pundits could come up with for what they'd seen and heard. And this proves that there are no human categories to describe the awesome works of God. That said, walking in the Spirit is somewhat like being drunk. In that, you are under the influence of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm treading carefully here, but I feel like in the West, we can be resistant and close ourselves off too much from the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's our self-sufficiency, our fine-tuned programming, our desire for control, or our negative reaction to extreme charismatic things that pushes us away from what one scholar describes as the whole point of the book of Acts. Here it is. Acts depicts life in the disrupting presence of the Spirit of God. These Pentecost events were anticipated by the prophets. The heart of Peter's sermon is built around Old Testament prophecy. Centuries before, the prophet Joel had anticipated a day when the Lord would pour out his Spirit on all people. This is a revolutionary thought. God would show no favoritism towards any certain skin color or gender or age or socioeconomic status. And I appreciate Joel's vision for the purpose behind these miraculous signs and wonders of the Spirit. Beyond mere theatrics, 
God's signs and wonders through his spirit are designed to encourage people to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Peter even draws King David into his sermon. And still today, if you've been there, from the southern steps in Jerusalem, one can see the famous ancient city of David in the foreground. And I can imagine during his message, Peter pointing there to the burial spot of Israel's much-loved king. And he references Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And Peter argues that the descendant God promised to King David, who now sits on the throne for eternity, is none other than the ascended and resurrected Christ, first century Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, that Jesus, lived, died, and rose again. In his sermon, Peter covers both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. This is very important theologically. Jesus is fully human, just like us. Jesus comes from a real place, Nazareth, albeit a backcountry town in the middle of nowhere in northern Israel. Jesus was also fully God. In Jesus dwelt all the supernatural power of the Godhead. Thus, he performed many miracles, wonders, and signs that were witnessed by many, including Peter himself. And this Jesus died by crucifixion, which raises that historical, theological, brain-busting question, who really killed Jesus? Who killed him? And Peter declares, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, yes, fellow Israelites, we sentenced Jesus to death when we handed him over to the wicked Romans to execute him. However, Peter says, this was all part of God's sovereign plan to demonstrate his love, to bridge the relational chasm between holy God and sinful us by paying for our sin. And so to offer salvation to all humanity. Wow. You see, because Jesus was fully human, he could represent us and all humanity on the cross. And because Jesus is fully God and lived the only ever righteous, sinless life, he was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He pays all the punishment for all of our sin. And so in a sense, it was our sin that put Jesus on that cross. We all played a part in Jesus' death. But, Peter goes on, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And rising from the dead, Jesus conquers humanity's greatest enemy, death itself. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, still the heart of the Christian story today. All the first preachers proclaimed this simple yet profound truth. And they called people to faith in Jesus, who is fully human and fully God. What's the response? Peter says, repent and be baptized. To summarize, Peter concludes this Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And I'm pumped by the response, cut to the heart. This is what the Spirit does. And the people in the crowd ask, what shall we do? Great response question. I wish every sermon I preached had that. People ask me, what should we do? (laughs) And Peter calls them to faith in Jesus. Repent. Make a spiritual U-turn. 
Simply being sorry for our sins is not enough. Nor can we deal with sin on our own by trying to be good enough or better than the person next to us or above the average. No. Instead, Jesus invites us to make a change of direction, stepping in faith, turning from our ways of living for self and sin and turning to God and his salvation. This is the nature of true repentance. And Peter preaches those who put their faith in Jesus receive the dual gift of forgiveness of sins and the promised Holy Spirit. Upon repentance, turning to Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who begins to transform and cleanse us. It's why the Christian practice of water baptism is a great outward symbol of the inward reality of our salvation in Christ. And the church, the Christian church, is born. That day, 3,000 people accepted the message. They were baptized and they joined the community of first Christ followers, the first church. And thanks be to God for this bountiful Pentecost harvest of souls. And those, these who were devoted to Jesus would soon become a threat to the Roman idea. They would face violent op opposition. Yet still, the Christian message would spread like wildfire. Well, as you can imagine, it's time now to land the plane on some application points. And I offer three thoughts for us today. First is this. The Christian message is a time-tested story. Acts chapter 2 says Peter stood before the crowd with his fellow apostles. They're called apostles now. He also stood on the shoulders of the prophets. What Peter preached here is one historian says, was not the denial of Judaism, but rather the conviction that the messianic age had finally arrived. The arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and the outpouring of the Spirit should not have come as a surprise to anyone versed in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jeremiah was the first to prophesy. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So just how does the new covenant differ from the old? Well, in the past, only certain people had access to God. Everyone else had to keep their distance, and God communicated most strictly via Moses, the high priest, and the Levites. But the new covenant features direct access to God and opens up the possibility of personal relationship with God, available to all from the least to the greatest. And just as he promised in Jeremiah 31 at Pentecost, God goes one step further. The Holy Spirit indwells the hearts of believers. And God goes from writing the law on stone tablets to writing the law right on our hearts. This is nothing short of remarkable. We have the gift of God's presence and the deep work of inner transformation that God offers through his indwelling Holy Spirit should we choose to accept it. And we see that this new covenant would also demand a new response from the people. Instead of riding on the spiritual coattails of their parents or being born into it, 
or reaping the consequences of sins of past generations. In the new covenant, there is no familiar place to hide, no free pass, or there's no way to blame others. It's us before God called to account, each person responsible for their own actions. More than a religious system or a set of rules or beliefs, Christian faith is primarily about a personal relationship with the risen Jesus. And for us, entrance into this relationship is not a passive exercise. When that Pentecost crowd comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and asks the poignant question, what shall we do? Peter says, repent, repent. Friends of North Shore Alliance Church, what will you do with Jesus and his message? Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf half demands a response from us. The God of the Christian story must be chosen by a simple yet profound decision of our will to repent and to put our faith in Jesus for salvation. And if you haven't made that decision yet, and the Spirit has been prompting you, I encourage you to take that step of faith today. Or talk to someone about it during our prayer ministry time or after the service. There's no more important choice you could make in your life than to turn your life over to Jesus. Second application point is this. God loves to empower and deploy ordinary people. The first Christian sermon is delivered by an unlikely person. One without credentials, educational pedigree, political clout, or economic power. Peter's a simple fisherman from a small country town in a region far away from the busy streets of Jerusalem. Plus, do you remember his track record? He's just denied Jesus three times not two months ago. At Pentecost, Peter offers nothing more than a simple message. On paper, there'd be no chance of success unless the spirit of the living God breathed on Peter's message or any preacher's message for that matter. Forty years ago, God began to impress on me this crucial point. In my mid-teens, I was a camper at Green Bay Bible Camp. And our speaker for a few years in a row was a man called Ken Hutcherson, a former NFL running back turned preacher. And near the start of every single sermon, Hutch would pray this simple (gasps) prayer. Lord, control me by your spirit and move me out of the way. I've been deeply impacted by this example. And the truth is, the Christian story is a message far more powerful than its messengers. Besides the many appearances of the risen Christ, which is exhibit A, Peter, in my opinion, stands as exhibit B for the proof of the resurrection. I mean, it's questionable whether archaeologists have located the actual empty tomb or the Shroud of Turin, But the historical record does tell us a whole lot about the radical transformation of a little fisherman named Peter. And I wonder, have you ever felt like you've made such a mistake that God could never forgive you or work in you or through you? Today, you may be sitting in church feeling far away from God. Perhaps by choice, you've distanced yourself 
You come from a different religious background or a faraway country and you're prone to wonder, how could God possibly accept me? Or by circumstance, you may feel far away. Like God couldn't be bothered with you or you think you've done something to push him away or you simply feel you're off his radar. Please know this morning, you certainly are not. The story of Peter reminds us what Jesus can do. He restores and redeems people. He restores and redeems people. I love how Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 puts it, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus loves to restore us and even redeem our past and use us then to reach others. And God's invitation extends to all, even those who feel far off. The cool thing is God is calling into his family, onto his team, broken people restored and redeemed by Jesus. And God loves to empower and deploy ordinary people who don't have it all together and know it to bring glory to his name by reaching others. So where are today's Peters in this room this morning? Where are today's Peters? The next wave of teachers, preachers, and pastors, servants of Jesus. I call you out. I know that God is, might be putting, tapping you on the shoulder. Where's the next wave of Peters in this room today? Third and final application point is this. It's a call to be open to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 describes the inauguration of a new messianic age. As one scholar suggests, all Christians since that day, without any exception, have become participants in this new age and have received the gifts of forgiveness and the spirit which Christ made available by his death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the spirit. In this sense, those converted as a result of Peter's sermon were typical of all subsequent believers. However, it's important we not make the happenings of Pentecost too prescriptive. The 3,000 do not seem to have experienced the same supernatural phenomena as 120 did. And we mustn't box the Holy Spirit in by attempting to recreate past experiences or by manipulating people, spaces, or the work of God. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit moves with different people in different ways at different times. And this is evidenced by the multiple analogies or metaphors the Bible employs to describe the Spirit. The Spirit is like a wind. The Spirit is like a fire. The Spirit is like water. And the Spirit is like a dove. All are apt descriptors of the multifaceted work of the Holy Spirit. Most important is whether or not we are open to the work of God through the indwelling Spirit in our church, and in our lives. Problem is, we are often guilty of resisting or inhibiting the Spirit's work through our own habitual sin, through nursing bad attitudes toward other people, or by simple neglect, not actively seeking the Spirit's power and presence in our lives. For much of my life, I struggled with dark, negative thoughts, mostly about myself, a loser complex, if you will, Entertaining these dark thoughts held me back in my faith journey for a very long time. And around 20 years ago, God began to point this out to me. 
I received prayer ministry on a number of occasions and felt God breaking something inside of me. And the Holy Spirit's been guiding me since. And with the Spirit's help, I've been learning to take every thought captive. And I have freedom to the point where I no longer fixate on or become paralyzed by dark, negative thinking. Thank you, Lord. Pastor Jim Simbola writes this, true Christianity is about the supernatural power of God delivering us and keeping us on a daily basis. Teaching, preaching, and discipleship have their place, but they can never replace God himself. When we become Christians, God is not finished with us yet. By the indwelling Holy Spirit, God longs to do a daily sanctifying work in our lives to shape us into the image of Jesus, to transform our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our relationships, how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we deploy our skills and talents. God even wishes to realign our desires with his will. And over the years, it's been a great joy for me to witness God doing this in your lives. And in these days, may our hearts be more and more open to receiving more of the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. Amen. I just want to invite the team to come now for a response song. I invite you to stand. Let's worship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your saving work. We thank you that we worship the resurrected, risen Christ who conquered humanity's greatest enemy, death itself. God, we pray that by your spirit now, you be ministering to us. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts more and more to your work in our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.